0: If you have your copy of scripture in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, this morning, book of Hebrews chapter 12, we're looking at verses 7 through 11. I'd invite you to turn there with me this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. We took a two week break from the book of Hebrews and uh, now uh, we are back there and uh, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 7 through 11 before I left on vacation we had talked about God's divine discipline and I told you in that sermon that when I came back we would then speak about how it is that we respond to God's divine discipline and that's what we will look at this morning responding to God's divine discipline I'll be reading from the English standard version this morning Hebrews 12:7 through 11. For they, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning may we have an encounter with the living word of God this morning and be a different people because of it I pray this in Jesus name amen I wonder if you've ever stopped and given thought to your life and specifically given thought to any pain or suffering that you have faced in your life Personally, I look back on times of my life and some of them were extremely difficult and extremely painful, but I find satisfaction in them. I learned so much about myself and my God through those times. In fact, I would venture to guess I've learned far more through affliction in my life than I have through happiness. If affliction were eliminated from our lives, I wonder if we would learn much at all. Because it is through affliction, through adversity, that we learn so much. What I've noticed is that when difficult trials come, we will either push into God or we will turn away from God. Countless lives have turned away from God because of some sort of difficulty in their life. And they struggle with how can a loving God allow such a painful experience in their life or painful experiences. And so rather than pushing to God, they turn from God. Let me be blunt. Trials, pain, hardship, affliction are all facts of life. However, how we respond to them reveals a great deal about who we are our trials will either make us better or they will make us bitter and many struggle with how it is that God can be both good and all powerful and yet he allows horrible suffering in the world. Failure to believe in God on the account of suffering in the world does not mean that God ceases to exist and it brings no solution to suffering whatsoever. Additionally, as Christians, we must know how it is that God wants us to respond to his loving discipline if we are ever going to run the race that he has set before us. Our text this morning reveals to us that we respond to God's discipline by submitting to it, understanding it is for our good and causes us to grow in holiness. Now, I know the idea of submission causes some people to cringe because, to be honest, we don't like to think of submission. Some people struggle with authority, but understand that God is the ultimate authority. And it does not matter whether you like it or not, nor does it matter if you like the program that he has laid out for your life or not. It would be not wise to rebel against it. Look at verse 9 of our text. We are told to be subject to the father of spirits and live. We only experience true life in Christ through the complete surrender of self. So this morning, I want us to see that we respond to God's loving divine discipline by submission. And there are three reasons for that. First, submission is essential to a father-son relationship submission is essential to a father-son relationship a few weeks ago we said that the reason why a lot of this is is um uses the word son or man is because that's uh who the inheritance was through and so just so you understand we're not ladies you can't be like. Husband, listen up. It's not just about men, but we use father son because that's what the scripture uses. It's a father child relationship. We see this in verse seven and eight. The beginning of verse seven can be translated two different ways. One way is as an indicative, which we read this morning. It is for discipline that you have to endure. The other way is as an imperative. Endure hardships as discipline. Either way it is translated, the point the author is making is discipline is vital to sonship. In other words, a father disciplines his sons and that discipline is proof that someone is genuinely a child of that person. Now, I do not make it a habit of going around disciplining other people's children, but I do discipline my own children. I do this because I love them, and I want what is best for them, and I want them to grow up with respect for others. The author very plainly and boldly states that if you lack discipline, then you are an illegitimate child of God and not a true child of God. Illegitimate children have no inheritance. And the author is saying that if you are are to be an heir of eternal life, then make sure that you are a genuine child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are his child through faith in Jesus Christ, the evidence of that, the evidence of of you being his child is his love for you, which is revealed in your life through discipline, not neglect. In other words, the discipline of the father is proof of his love for you if he did not love you then he would neglect to discipline you and that's not love at all neglect is the opposite of love now it's interesting because look what the verse says the beginning of verse 8 says if you are left without discipline and we ask ourselves don't both believers and non-believers go through trials what is the author indicating when he says, some are without discipline? When he says, if you are left without discipline, what's he saying? How can we know if the trials that we go through are evidence of God's love? Because we're, because we're his children, how, how can we know that? So how do we know if the trial we are faced with is loving discipline? Well, first we must answer this. Have I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ alone For salvation? If the answer to that question is yes, then we must ask how do we respond to the trials that come our way? You see, a true child of God submits to those trials and seeks to grow in holiness. As a result, an illegitimate child shrugs off the trial and says, It's just bad luck. Well, I just had bad luck today. Or even worse, they turn against God and they grow bitter. Furthermore, when a true child of God sins, they are troubled by their sin. An illegitimate child will pridefully think of sin as no big deal. A true child submits to the discipline of the father because that discipline is vital for the father son relationship. The true child understands that submission is essential to the father son relationship. That's a true child. And so you must ask yourself how do I respond to God's discipline? Because it is essential. To your relationship to him. Second. Discipline is for our good. That we may share in his holiness. Discipline is for our good. That we may share in his holiness. As we look at verse 9 and 10. Or these verses. We see this comparison to earthly fathers. Whose discipline. It says we respected them for their discipline. But then it says we should be much more subject to the Father of Spirits because our earthly fathers discipline in a way that seems best to them. Yet the Father, the Heavenly Father, always disciplines for our good. And why does he do this? So that we might share in his holiness. So let's break that down this morning. First. Part of that, the imperfect discipline of our earthly father is beneficial. Therefore, the perfect discipline of our heavenly father is more beneficial. As I said, we see this contrast in verse 9. We have earthly fathers contrasted with our heavenly father. The discipline of an earthly father is imperfect. Every earthly father falls short in the knowledge of their children and in wisdom and how to train and discipline their children. I wish this were not the case, but it is. No matter how we think of our father, some of you love your father very much or loved your father very much. They were not perfect. They weren't. Our heavenly father is perfect. He knows each and every one of us perfectly. In fact, he even knows your thought before you even think it. He knows the motive of why you did what you did, of why you are doing certain things. Not only does he know us perfectly, but his wisdom is perfect. And And while our earthly fathers will try to act in love, they will often fail to act in love. I do my best to act in love. But you know what? I fail as an earthly father. I fail. God, on the other hand, always acts in love. He is always seeking our highest good. All the time. There are times, I know you may find this hard to believe. But there are times I lose my temper. There are times that I am mean. There are times that my anger gets the best of me. But the beauty of God is that God is not temperamental. And as an earthly father, I only have so much time to raise my children and, uh, and have authority over them. But God's authority is for a lifetime. It's forever, even into eternity. I do all I can as a father to prepare my children for life. However, God is preparing his children not for life, but for eternity. The whole point that the author is making is that, yes, the discipline of our earthly father is beneficial, even though it's flat because we are sinful we still respected our earthly fathers for it because we know that we benefited from it especially if it was done right however it is no comparison to God, to god's discipline because god's discipline is absolutely perfect in every single way not only that But because the Heavenly Father's discipline is perfect, we subject ourselves to it and live, the text says. Because the Heavenly Father's discipline is perfect, we subject ourselves to it and live. It's interesting that our response to God's discipline is important. The discipline is important, yes. But our response to that discipline is also important if we resist it, And we harden our hearts. Then we will miss the purpose of the discipline altogether. If we're truly God's children. This will only result in more discipline. God's intention is that we submit to his discipline. Now when I say submit. I do not mean submit in a defiance way. Like the boy whose mother made him sit in a chair until he calmed down. She said you sit there until you calm down. And he said I may be sitting on the outside. But I'm standing on the inside. That's not what we're talking about. That's not submission. True submission is displayed when we understand that God's ways are best and that God is faithful. The psalmist reflected true submission when he wrote this in Psalm 119. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We should desire to submit to God because he has the sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. God answers to no one. One only has to read the book of Job to understand the sovereignty of God. Job was the most godly man on the earth. And yet God had a perfect right to take away everything that Job held dear. No one can cry to God, God, that's just not fair. I would challenge you to read of the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord comes to him and tells him that he is about to take the delight of his eyes away from him with a stroke. If you are wondering what that means, the Lord is telling him that he's going to take his wife away from him. If that is not bad enough, God says, you shall not mourn or weep. I'm going to take your wife And you shall not mourn or weep. The point was, it is a spiritual object lesson for Israel. And the next day, Ezekiel's wife dies. And Ezekiel does as God commanded. Did not mourn or weep. You see, Ezekiel learned a lesson that every single one of us needs to learn. And that is God is God and we are not God. And he does as he pleases. If the sovereign God of this universe wants to take my wife, my children, my possessions, my health, my life, it is God's prerogative to do so. And he does not do it out of spite he does not do it out of anger that ultimately somehow what he is doing is for my good and it's so hard to wrap our mind around i love what a.w. pink says in his commentary on hebrews he says the trial was not as severe as it could have been It was not as severe as I deserve, and my Savior suffered far worse for me. That is to be our attitude. Faith submits to the discipline of the Father, and it trusts the Father's discipline, is perfect, and serves His eternal purpose for our good that we may share in His holiness. Third point. Discipline seems painful in the present, but it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those trained by it. Discipline seems painful in the present, but it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those trained by it. The reason why I think we hear so little about divine discipline is because, to be honest, many preachers are man pleasers. We live in a superficial time where many cater their message to that of the popular opinion. Some say pastor is paid to soothe the conscience, not stir the conscience. Therefore, they preach a little of hell, and little of wrath, and little of discipline, and little of the sovereignty of God. In verse 11, the author of Hebrews makes it clear that discipline is painful in the present, or at least seems that way. That it is designed to produce fruit of righteousness, and that as children, we must submit to the training. So let's look at those three points. First, discipline seems painful in the present. Discipline seems painful in In the present, in our limited perspective, which is bound by time, discipline seems rather painful. Now, this is key because look at what the verse says. For the moment, that is a reference of time, discipline seems painful. He doesn't say it is painful, he says it seems painful. How often are we deceived by what seems to be? Our senses at times play tricks on us. The world seems to stand still. Right? Does anybody feel the world moving right now? No. But it is. It seems to stand still. But it really doesn't. The sun seems to go up and then descend. But we know that's not true. The sun seems larger when it is setting than when it's high up in the sky. You see, what appears to be is often not what is. Everything that we know about the discipline of our Heavenly Father is arrived at by mere carnal reasoning. I am glad the scripture says, yes, when we go through discipline, it seems painful. It is not pleasant. I don't think it's wrong to, to cry out to God. When you're going through a difficult trial, read the book of Psalms. It's filled with weeping. Listen, we want everything to be simple today. We want it to be simple and easy. We are so unwilling to be cut by God. We feel so afraid of our heavenly Father's hand of discipline. Always it always seems more horrible than it is. Suppose there was a disease in your leg that if you if it spread to the rest of your body, it would kill you. And the only solution would be to take your leg And so you're faced with this decision. Will I lose my leg or will I lose my life? And so you lose your leg, but you're still alive. You willingly walk through the operation. And yet another person who is not given this information will pass out at the smallest incision when they they are faced with this dilemma. Okay, lose lose my leg. But they don't know that if they don't lose their leg, they're going to lose their life. It is the same way with many of us. We want everything served up on a silver platter. We want everything nice and easy. We don't want to experience any pain in our life. The moment we do experience some pain, we think, oh, this is unbearable. I can't walk through this. That God is somehow out to get me. That he's just up in heaven waiting to run me out. Listen, if God wanted to destroy you, he would destroy you. It's that easy. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. The discipline seems painful. Not only does it seem painful, but it seems painful, it says, in the present. The reason the discipline seems painful is because we judge it in the present time. Which is often the worst time to judge something. Suppose I'm going through something today and maybe I've had a a bad headache. Or maybe my my chest hurts. Or maybe I'm sore somewhere on my body. At that moment, my mind's distracted. And I'm not in real good state to judge exactly what's going on. You know what we do, right, today when when we have a pain? What do you do? First thing you do is go on Google. And the next thing you know, you're dying. Right. I mean, like you thought you had something wrong with your fingernail and then you go search it on Google and you're you're going to be dead tomorrow for sure. I mean, that's what happens. And we 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 get ourselves worked up and we we panic and oh, I got some sort of terrible disease. Something terrible's wrong with me. We are distracted and without judgment and often in the midst of discipline, we're trying to judge that discipline. And no wonder it seems painful because we're in the middle of it. When you're in the middle of discipline, it seems painful. How can I possibly sit down and calmly judge what I'm going through? In fact, sin crouches at your door and waits for you to be distracted so it can overtake you. Listen, your discipline will seem painful in the present. But here is the key. In the midst of the trial, we must do all we can to focus on the goal, which is that we would bear the fruit of righteousness. That is why this is written to us, that we would keep in mind that God is doing in our, what God is doing in our lives in light of eternity. We struggle to see the benefit that we're going through, but we must remain focused on what God is working in us. Yes, discipline seems painful in the present, but we also must notice this, that discipline is designed to produce fruits of righteousness. Verse 11 tells us, That later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Have you ever tried to give a kid medicine? (laughs) They don't like it. Why? Because often it's disgusting. They think it tastes bad. That's why they have come out with all these flavors of medicine. To try to disguise the bad taste of it. Medicine's not pleasant to take. But the result is good. The gardener prunes the vine. It looks pitiful in the winter. But the reward comes when the autumn arrives. And it's full. Job, when faced with trials, squirmed. But his end was more prosperous than his beginning. Discipline is meant to prune us. Prune in us fruits of righteousness or holiness. In other words, discipline is meant to conform us to Jesus Christ. You see, true righteousness is not about our eternal qualities. But true righteousness begins in the heart of the person. A truly righteous person has godly motives and seeks to bring glory to God in all they do. Now please understand that it's not natural to bear fruit from discipline. I love verse 11 because it tells us that discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And then it has this word, but. But, so it seems this way, but here's the real deal. Have you ever seen someone melt metal or seen a video of it? It's fascinating. As the precious metal gets hotter and hotter on the surface, you have this scum. That floats to the top. You see the effect of the hot fire is to make the scum show itself. And then the person doing the refining skims the scum off the top of the metal. Now, discipline causes your sin to rise to the top of the surface. And while you are boiling under the fire of discipline, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit comes in. And he sees that scum on your life and he skims it off. You see, when we're going through discipline, the natural thing to do is to rebel against God. God brings discipline into my life, so into, into, into what I'm doing, How can I love him from that discipline? Naturally, I can't. In my natural state, I want to rebel. You see, in order for me to respond in love and submission, it takes grace. And that grace is given to me by the Heavenly Father. Trial breeds discontent and anger and rebellion and envy and grumbling and complaining and all kinds of sinful attitudes but god overrules them and makes the very thing that should cause you and i to be worse he takes that thing and ministers to us and causes that discipline to produce not sin but fruits of righteousness in us now this Fruit is not instantaneous. It comes afterwards, it says. It says later it yields the fruit. You don't plant an apple tree and expect to have apples the next week. You don't plant a seed and expect a flower a week later. There are times that the fruit of righteousness may not come until years later, but it may also come fairly quickly. Afterwards, the point is that the fruit of righteousness does come. It just comes after the discipline. Lastly, notice this. It says it's a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness and peace go together. You cannot have true righteousness without peace. And you cannot have true peace without righteousness. Sometimes we make a mistake. When it comes to our trials. And we think. Think of them As. Somehow God's peace, even though we have disobeyed God to gain that peace. So we, we think of a relief from a trial that that must be God's peace. Oftentimes we try to condone our sin, right? We say this. Have you ever heard someone say this about sinful behavior? Well, God's just given me a peace. Um, no. No. God, just give me a peace about this. If our decision is not righteous, then you're not experiencing peace. We may experience relief, but relief is not peace. I want to quickly share with you some ways that God's discipline will produce peaceful fruit of righteousness. One, by teaching us the consequences of sin. By teaching us the consequences of sin. Think of King David and his sin with Bathsheba. Murder of her husband, which was forgiven. But God also took the life of the son they conceived. Furthermore, God raised up evil in David's own household. In fact, his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Tamar's brother Absalom murdered Amnon and later led a rebellion against David. Listen, sin has consequences. And when we suffer the painful consequences for our sin, we see that sin destroys and ultimately brings death. So therefore, we must flee from it. It teaches us the consequences of sin. Secondly, it humbles us. Humbles us. By our very nature, we think too highly of ourselves. We all have some self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, some pride in our lives. When we see the sin of others, we think, I would never do that. Remember Peter? He told the Lord, even if all these other disciples, Lord, even if all these others fall away, I will never do such a thing. The Lord had to reveal to Peter that his heart was just as prone to sin as anyone else's heart and told him that that very night he would deny him three times. How about the Apostle Paul who wrote a third of the New Testament? The Lord brought such a burden onto Paul that he despaired even of life It said, Paul said we are not to trust in self but in God who raises the dead every last one of us is prone to trust ourselves and we can and, and what we can accomplish rather than trust in the Lord for example there is nothing wrong with having a savings plan but if you trust in your savings plan your trust is in the wrong place and God has a way of wiping out your savings plan I like to exercise and generally I try to eat well. I know some of you looked at my vacation pictures where I wasn't eating well, but generally I try to eat somewhat healthy. But if I trust in those things to preserve my life, God has a way of bringing injury or illness into my life to teach me to trust in him and that my my very breath depends on him. Not only that, but thirdly, by getting our focus on eternity. God's peaceful, God's discipline will produce peaceful fruit of righteousness by getting our focus on eternity. Naturally, we all focus on this life, on the here and now, in spite of the fact that we're told that our life is a mere vapor. We're here for a moment and gone the next. Paul makes it clear that our bodies are wearing out every single day. Every day you live is a day closer to death. These bodies weren't meant to last forever. It should cause us to focus on eternity. Listen to what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Through our, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Fourthly, it produces Uh, She reveals to us blind spots, hidden, and hidden sins are revealed in our lives. Did you know that there are times that we're unaware of our sins and our faults until God brings some trial into our life and exposes our sins? Someone might say, well, I, I don't have a problem with patience. I don't have any problem with patience. And then they get stuck in traffic. And we see how impatient they are, that they really do have a problem with patience. Not only do they have a problem with patience, but they obviously have a problem with anger too. Sometimes the affliction that makes us aware of the sin that we have hidden in our heart, that we've not seen because, because it reveals to us our anger or pride or some sort of sin that we've so Buried deep down inside, that affliction comes and reveals that sin to us. Paul was a brilliant man and was given an amazing vision into heaven. And though he was a humble man, there was a danger that he would be puffed up with pride. And so the Lord sent a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh to keep Paul from ever exalting himself. We don't know what that thorn was. It could have been something physical. It could have been people who plagued his ministry. Whatever it was, it kept Paul from falling into the sin of pride. Fifthly, our faith is strengthened and we draw closer to Christ. Through his thorn in the flesh, Paul learned to trust Christ in ways that he had not done before. The same is true for us. Our faith gets strengthened. We draw closer to the Lord. Paul learned the sufficiency of the grace of God and the strength of God in the midst of painful weaknesses. You see, adversity has a way to cause us to lean on God, lean on the Lord in ways that perhaps we never have before, that we need to do now. When we live a trouble-free life, often we don't depend on the Lord. We depend on self. Fruits of righteousness produced in us. Peaceful fruits of righteousness. Sixthly, we develop compassion. Have you ever looked down on someone who's suffering? Have you ever had this thought? They deserve it. Have you ever thought that? So often we look at someone in a situation, we think they just get it together. They wouldn't have this problem. What they need is a budget. Or the reason that they are on food stamps is because they're too lazy to work. You ever had those thoughts? There's all kinds of jobs out there. Why don't they just go find a job? If they were More like me. Sure you may not say that. But that's what you're thinking. If they were more like me. They wouldn't have all these problems. And then God sends some sort of affliction your way. And suddenly you realize. You need to have more compassion. For those who suffer. We suddenly lose our judgmental spirit. When it happens to us. Suddenly when you're smitten with the affliction. Suddenly you have more sympathy for that person. Suddenly, when you can't find a job, or you lose your job, or you have to go on food stamps, suddenly you realize what they're going through. And don't you sit there and think in your head right now, that will never happen to me. Oh boy, if you just had that thought. God have mercy. Let me tell you something. I grew up poor. I knew what it's like to go and rummage through the dump to find stuff. When I was young, we didn't have the little EBT card that you can just go in inside, we had paper food stamps and when you walked into the store with paper food stamps everyone knew you were poor we stood in line for commodities to get the big block of cheese and the peanut butter but let someone look at my mama and say she was lazy oh boy there'd be a fight I watched her work three jobs just so we could have something. I know what it's like to lose my job as an adult and not be able to provide for my family and go on government assistance while living with your mom in her house with no room. God used those times to show my heart and reveal in my heart that I need to have compassion for people that are in similar circumstances as me. You see, God has a way of producing that in your life. To the discipline seventhly we become more usable in god's service fruit always grows best on the vine that is pruned the fruit of the spirit will grow best in the hearts that have submitted to the pruning of god's divine discipline you see we live in an instantaneous society right we have microwaves to cook our food faster We have instant coffee, which is, I wouldn't recommend it, but we have that. We have instant rice. We have instant pictures now, instant copies. Everything seems to be so fast, yet no one has ever come up with an instant fruit. Righteousness is fruit of the Spirit, and it will not come in an instant. It must grow in our lives, and it will grow as you submit your life to God's divine discipline. C. I know I had a lot of subheadings under that. C. As children, we must submit to the training. As children, we must submit to the training. Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We gain benefit from God's discipline if we are trained by it. The word "trained" in the Greek is gymnazo. It is where we get our word gymnasium, and it indicates a physical training or exercise. The literal meaning was to strip naked. It offers us two images. First, as we refer back to verse 1, it is the image of the athlete who has to stir himself of all, or strip himself of all the needless weight and sin that hinders them from running well. The other picture is the Greeks were fascinated, were enamored with a perfect body. Olympic athletes would strip down before their trainer, and the trainer would determine what muscles they needed to develop, and the trainer would have a regimen for the athlete to follow to build up any muscle that was lacking so that the athlete would have the perfect physique. Of course, the athlete had to submit to the training regimen to gain Benefit. God is our perfect spiritual trainer. He knows where we are lacking and what we need to develop to best serve Him. But we must submit to the program of His training. If you do your own thing, you're going to pay for it later by being defeated by temptation and sin. I want to quickly... Quickly share with you seven things we need to train in our submission to God. First, you need to train your conscience. Train your conscience. When we are going through discipline, we must run to God and seek out the meaning of it. This requires that we must ask if there's anything in us that God is displeased with. If we honestly examine our heart, often we'll see that much of our service to the Lord is done out of habits. In fact, some of you may be here this morning. Out of habit. You didn't come here because you really wanted to worship the Lord this morning. This is what you do on Sunday. Habit. Or imitation. You saw someone else do it, so that's what you do. Instead of saying, I love Jesus and that's why I'm doing this. I love Jesus, that's why I'm here to worship. I love Jesus, that's why I study his word. I love Jesus, that's why I pray. I love Jesus and he affects every aspect of a life. So often we do what we do because it's just what we do. It's just what we do. If somebody were to ask us, why do you go to church on Sunday? It's just what I do. You see, we must train our conscience. Secondly, we must train ourselves to engage in prayer. We must train ourselves to engage in prayer. Often in the middle of discipline, we are hesitant to approach the throne of grace, but that is because we are carnally minded. As we walk through discipline, our need for prayer is even greater. We must seek God and ask Him to search our hearts and reveal any wicked way in us. We must submit to Him all of the things that perplex us and we must cry out to Him, letting Him know our struggles and that we want to grow in peace, peaceful fruit of righteousness and share in His holiness through the discipline. And so in the midst of discipline, we should be calling out to God and saying, God, help me to grow in peaceful fruit of righteousness through this, that I would be more and more like jesus christ and more holy as a result of the discipline that you are putting me through thirdly we must train ourselves in grace and meekness you know meekness is the exact opposite of self-will and a hardness of heart to be meek means you have a soul that is pliable and ready to be fashioned after the divine image of god it is a holy submission that is willing and ready to be molded however the divine potter determines to mold you We will have no peaceable fruit of righteousness until our will is broken and we are totally submitted to his will. We must train ourselves in grace and meekness. We must train ourselves in patience. Sometimes, as we are going through a trial, the hardest thing to do is patiently wait on the Lord. The psalmist declares in Psalm 37, 7, That we are to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. We must wait on the Lord. Wait for Him to deliver us from our trial. You see, when we try to deliver ourselves, we end up even deeper in trials. The benefit of, benefits of discipline are not immediate, immediate, but we must be patient and wait on the Lord. And while we wait... We must remain obedient to the Lord. We must train ourselves in patience. Fifthly, we must train ourselves in faith. We must train ourselves in faith. In every trial and act of discipline, God's hand must be seen. Far too often, as Christians, we give Satan far more power than he has. We must remember that Satan can only go as far as God lets him. He can only go where God says stop. And then he must stop. When we think every hardship is from Satan, or that somehow difficulties are caused by Satan or by men, our heart begins to fret. We're not, oh. And I don't know why, at what point it entered into the Christian's life that everything, that bad that has ever come into someone's life, oh, that's just Satan attacking. And we, we pray against that. Right, We we, we have little prayer meetings. Lord, we pray against the attacks of Satan and we we bind Satan up. I I don't even understand. I don't understand that terminology. But anyway, we think our difficulties are from Satan or or our difficulties are from a man. And the reason our heart frets is because if those difficulties are from man or from Satan, then, then they're in control, not God. Then someone or something else is in control and to be honest that's scary however when we look at things as coming from the father when we have faith then for the same reason god allowed these things to come into our hearts come into our life for our good and for his glory then it calms the heart and we can only arrive there by faith we can only say god I have faith that what you're working out in me is something great. Only when by faith we have an understanding that God is working his will, we learn the lessons that we are intended to learn. We must train ourselves in faith. We must train ourselves in hope. Faith looks upward and sees God's hand in the midst of the trial. Hope looks forward in anticipation of the gain from the trial. Hope is a confident expectation that indeed God is working this out for our good. Hope is the opposite of despair. Hope lays hold of the promises of, of verse 11 when it says, but later, and it brings peace in the present. Hope assures a soul that is struggling. Hope looks at the problem in the trial and can have joy that God is working in the midst of the trial. Hope knows the promise. And after, after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First Peter 5.10 Must train ourselves in hope. Seventhly, and lastly, we must train ourselves in love. It is the love of the Father that disciplines. If that's the case, we should should move, be moved to return love to him. Instead of doubting his wisdom or questioning his goodness, we should have gratitude to the one who is looking out for our best. The ultimate Christian ethic is... Is that of love? Christ said we are to love God and to love others. He said our love is proven through our obedience. We must train ourselves in love, and we do that through obedience. And we love like Christ taught us to love by loving God with everything we have first and foremost, and then by loving others as Christ loved them. Train ourselves in love. Let me close this morning by giving one final point of application. Someone would probably ask this question. If all trials are God's discipline and they are designed to make me holy, then should I ever try to get out of them? So is it wrong for me to try to get a better job when I'm sick? Should I go to the doctor when something irritates me when I'm sick? If I don't like my job, should I look for a better job? Or should I just trust that God's going to resolve the issue? After all, if the trials are for my good, shouldn't I just submit to them and not worry about it? Here's my answer. This whole sermon can be summed up right here. <laughs> and some of you are like, well, why don't you just say this? <laughs> it is all a matter of the heart. What is your attitude towards the Lord in your trial? Is your heart in complete submission to him in the midst of your trial? When you go through a trial, do you see that as God's providential love being worked out in your life? And are you trying to learn something from it? Listen, I don't care how big or how small that trial is. Do you look at that trial and say, okay, God, this is your providential love. What are you trying to teach me from it? You say, well, Pastor, that means if I get stuck in traffic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? I know if I get stuck in traffic, I know what he's trying to teach me because I have a problem of patience. I'm backing out of the driveway this morning. I got ticked off because I left my glasses inside and I had to put my heart in check. I'm like, you are getting ready to preach this sermon right here. Put yourself in check right now. And I just. Okay Lord. I know I need patience. Here's the real kicker. If God's will does not coincide with your will. Are you willing to accept it? If God's will does not coincide with your will. Are you willing to accept it? You see, oftentimes I wonder if we pray against God's will. Because someone may be exactly where God wants them. In the middle of a trial sent to them by God's divine discipline. And we spend all kinds of time... Praying them out of the trial, or at least trying to. is not going to do any good. We're trying to pray them out of where God has placed them. You know the best way to pray? People ask me all the time. Say, so, well, if you really believe that, then what's the best way to pray? In the midst of a trial, what is the best way for someone to pray? You know the Bible answers that for us? It's amazing. The Bible has an answer. Just look at Jesus. Jesus was not being disciplined by God, but he was facing the cross. And in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed to the father. Father. If you are willing to remove this cup from me. Father, if you're willing. You see that? total submission to the will of the father father if you are willing to remove this cup from me and then he said this powerful statement that we just don't recognize nevertheless not my will but yours be done not my will but yours be done. How often do we bow in prayer and Lord, just take this from that person and heal that person and do this and that. And that. You just do all this, God. And say, saying, God. If, if it's your will. That this happened, but not my will, God. Your will be done. That You would get the glory no matter what. How about Paul? Three times Paul asked God to remove the thorn from his flesh. God said, no, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. Did Paul leave man? Well, forget you then, God. Did he turn his back on the Lord? Did he go his own way? Nope. He was content to live in the fact that it says... He took pleasure in his weakness because when he was weak, he was then strong. King David did wrong when he entered into battle and Israel with the Philistine king. God therefore allowed the Amalekites to raid the city where the families of David and his men lived. They burned it to the ground and took all of their wives and their children captive. David's men threatened to stone him. What did David do? He then submitted to God's discipline. He did not assume that he should go after the enemy and recover his possessions and his family. Instead, he said, God, should I pursue them or not? It was only after God gave David permission to go that he went and recovered everything. Here's why I need you to understand, church. Every trial, every single trial, whether it is major or minor should cause us to stop and take pause and examine our heart every single time. The very first question that we should ask in the midst of any trial is this question, God, am I in submission to you? And then we must ask, am I seeking to learn and grow in holiness through this trial? And if your heart is right, and it is not wrong to ask. Then it's not wrong to ask the father. To remove the trial. If it is. His. Will. And then take steps to resolve the problem. That got you there in the first place. Often. In God's grace and love. He will remove the trial. But there are times where he says this. Nope my grace is sufficient for you and when he does we must trust that he's our loving heavenly father who always has our best good in view therefore we submit to him knowing that he will produce peaceful fruits of righteousness in our lives that we may share in his holiness so how do you respond to god's discipline this morning the trials that you faced this last week how did you respond Did you examine your heart? Did you give pause? Or did you just muscle through it? Yeah, I got this taken care of. How did you respond? And how will you respond going forward? In this moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to this message. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to pray with me. Maybe you want to pray on your own. Maybe you want to pray in your pew. If God has led you to respond in any way, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's bow for prayer.